3: Welcome to the program, it's Tuesday, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, and because it's 4 o'clock, this is the word to stand on for life, it's a radio program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, questions about things going on in your life, really anything that's in your heart, all you have to do is dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send them to us on our Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app, Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Don't have anything going on on Tuesday, so let me get right to the question. I'm going to take a few minutes with this first one. Um, This is the kind of question that, believe me, it's a delight to receive. This is from our email inbox from Charles C. Uh, Good evening, Pastor Ron. I've talked to and watched many of your staff pastors teach. They are all different But one thing I noticed about all of them is that they know the scriptures. Where do you send your pastors to study? I have met many pastors and they haven't compared. I don't mean to sound rude about other churches, but your pastors know their Bibles. How did they get to know so much of their Bibles? And what do you do? Well, Charles, this is music to a pastor's ears, believe me. Now, I'm going to take a little bit of time here because the relationship I have with these men is not not a normal relationship. They're all family to me. And, um, uh, you know, we don't just hire people from outside. Uh, Many of our pastors uh, have been developed here. I'll give you an example. Our two youth pastors uh, have literally grown up since babies in this church um they've been uh hearing the word of god their entire lives and as i've said many times on this program people ask about children's ministry we teach the bible uh verse by verse chapter by chapter uh, in all grades in all ages now we do it at their level of course but uh we don't do stories we don't have a curriculum that somebody's written to make them interested we believe strongly in the power of the word of god And so these people, these men, uh, have been raised in that environment. Uh, I can take no credit at all, Charles, uh, none at all. Uh, These men love Jesus Christ with all of their heart. And one of the traits of somebody who's really in love with Jesus is that they're going to want to get to know him better. And they have an honest, aggressive hunger for the Word of God. And of course, we do our best to encourage that. But the the reality is is it, that if you're not motivated, self-motivated, to really find out, you're not going to do it. Bible college won't do it. Seminary won't do it. Uh, what will do it is this hunger. One of the things Paul and I, we pray for all the time. We pray for the lost, the hurting, the hungry, the broken, the needy, the confused, the fearful, and the angry. And then we, we pray for them individually at times. But... When I get to the hungry, that's what I'm asking for. I'm saying, Lord, send me people who are hungry for your word. Not just a casual relationship to it, but hungry for your word. And these men, are pastors, and we have 12 staff pastors, including me, um, uh, we, we, we love God's word. And these men simply want to know it. Now, the way that's happened is they've been sitting under the teaching of the word. Um, The Holy Spirit um, convicts their hearts uh, and they just get this voracious appetite for God's word. And that's what they've done. Um, Our pastors are all different. None of them teaches alike. Um, But as Charles indicated, uh, they really know their scriptures. Now, for example, where do I send our pastors to study? We don't. Um, they sit here. They've sat under my teaching, the teaching of the other pastors here. Uh, and, and what we do is we just teach the word and we let the Holy Spirit do the rest. Um, how did they get to know so much of their Bibles? God is a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. And these are men who have, have really, really determined in their heart that the purpose of their life is to get to know Jesus Christ better. Um, If I've done anything at all, let me point out two things that we do here at Calvary Chapel. One, our theme, and we pound people with this relentlessly, and I mean that in the best possible way, uh, to just be with Jesus. He's the one that supplies the hunger. He's the one that, that answers their questions and their prayers. He's the one that reveals more and more of himself. And there's nothing more exciting than that. I think too often we have a relationship with our Bible like, well, I got to read it. These guys love it. They absolutely love it. If I've done one thing well, let me let me let me say two things. If I've done two things well, one is I've been consistent over all these years in teaching it. That's all we do. We don't do cute stories, we don't do topical sermons. I teach the Bible. Just chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and uh, and they've been exposed to that. The other thing we do here at Calvary, and it's probably been the most fruitful ministry uh, that we have here. It's our pastor's discipleship class. It started out with just men who were called to be pastors, and um, it, it sort of evolved over the years. We've been doing this now for 26 years. Uh, it sort of evolved into... Uh, people that really want to get to know the Lord, people that really want to dig in and serve. And serving is required, and being a part of the body life is required. If they really are that interested, then um, we have that class every other Saturday, as long as I'm in town. Every other Saturday, it's a two-hour class from 10.30 to 12.30, and we talk about Everything we talk about church life, we talk about the Word of God we talk about doctrine uh, we talk about the impact of doctrine in our lives practically and and these men, all of them all of my elders and all of my pastors have come up through that class, and I get even more direct Charles with that the people in that class uh, than I do uh, even in my my normal teaching style. And uh, if you've listened to me teach, I am very direct, but I'm even more so. Uh, there's accountability and and um, uh, I, I I want to hear their hearts. And I have just been so abundantly blessed by the Lord because these men are just God's wonderful gift to me and, and to our body here at Calvary Chapel. We have a Spanish Bible study. Uh, Pastor Ed um, uh, you know he, he's he got a different style different personality but he teaches the word the same way we don't bend to cultural differences uh, all of our other pastors they get opportunities to teach um, I, I never have to call somebody from outside and ask them to teach uh, I've got people here in the body who are wonderful and the more uh, I give them the opportunities the better teachers they become but no, they, uh, one of my pastors, I think only one, has been to Bible college. He's one of the kids that grew up here from a baby. Um, and he wasn't even saved for many years that he came here. But when he did, man, he hit the ground running. So um, th- they've grown up here. And uh, what, a, what a wonderful blessing they are. Charles, thank you for noticing. I appreciate it very, very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls. Here's a question from Lawrence. He says, I want to know if the church and Israel are the same, but living in different eras. Charles, or or, I'm sorry, Lawrence, the answer is no. The church and Israel are two different entities. That's really important we understand. God made unconditional promises to Abraham and to Israel or the people of God through him. But he's made different promises to the church. And it's very, very clear that they're two separate, distinct entities. The church didn't replace Israel. Um, that's really important for you to understand. Um, it's just, it's not the church continues the work of Israel. It's a completely different dispensation, completely different relationship. Uh, and God is going to return and fulfill all of his promises to Uh, Israel. Uh, That will happen, of course, in the millennial kingdom. At the moment, we are the church. Acts 17, 26 says that we were placed here at just this time, for just this moment in history. And that makes our ministry very, very important. So uh, two completely separate things. And Lawrence, anybody who says they're the same or that the church has replaced Israel, uh, that is... uh, uh, Aberrant doctrine, and you need to be aware of that. Let's go to our first call of the day, Matthew from Siblo. Matthew, line one. Thanks for calling. You're on the air.
4: Hey, Papa Ron, how you doing today?
3: Doing well for an old person.
4: Yeah, and I just want to echo that you do not hold back at the pastors' class. That's for sure.
3: <laughs>
4: <laughs> we all need it. Um, I was going to call because I was speaking to a family friend about divine appointments and I was uh, kind of exhorting her to uh, um, don't get, because her, her, I guess her sense was more like, I want the Lord to open that up and open that opportunity, but I told them if someone's living to sin or something's happening, the, what the Lord tells you in the Bible is things that we automatically should do. It's not something that, you know, the Lord has to open up an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe I'm kind of in the wrong track. Maybe I, I'm I'm on the right track. But um, I, I told him that divine appointments to me is like if we're at a restaurant or we're at the grocery store. And we kind of have a we had no prior expectations of meeting. And you meet somebody or maybe you maybe meet a family friend somewhere out and about, and you talk about the Lord. Can you expound more on divine appointments uh, and so kind of get your knowledge on that? Your wisdom. Thank you, Papa.
3: Thank you, Matthew. I can do that. Um, I, I think one of the things I said earlier, uh, reference the scripture, God is a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. And I think if we get up in the morning and say, okay, Lord, I, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. This is on my schedule, but you can interrupt my schedule anytime you want. And if you have these divine appointments for me, Lord, give me the discernment to know open my eyes that I can see the people who are lost and hurting and hungry and broken and needy and confused. So um, um, I think when we set our hearts on being used by God, um, he will always, always open opportunities for you to be used. And I think those are the divine appointments that you're talking about. So it's very, very important. Now, uh, when when Paul and I, we go into a restaurant or we're shopping somewhere, um, today I had a, a pastor's luncheon with, with uh, the other San Antonio uh, area pastors, the greater San Antonio area Calvary Chapel pastors. Uh, and there was a, a couple of people sitting at the table. Uh, they were uh, in the military. They were in their fatigues, um, um, middle-aged men, not kids. And uh, I wanted to go talk to him. I, I just walked by and said to him, hey, thank you for your service. You guys are snappy dressers. And then one guy looked at me and he said, yeah, don't you hate it when you go somewhere and somebody's wearing the same outfit? And we had a laugh. But what I'm doing the whole time I'm doing that is saying, Lord, if, if you'll open a door, then I'll be able to talk to them about Jesus. Now, this is just at a restaurant, people that I've never seen before and and in this particular case uh we just had a nice quick conversation and and there were no questions i i i left the thing hey god bless you guys thank you for your service and and um, um, and that was it but many many times god will open that door and and those are the divine appointments now one of the things you mentioned matthew um you know people say well um we we try to make our our experience with god too mystical um, the Bible's full of stuff that we need to do. And one of the things that we need to do is always be open and available to the leading of the spirit. And I think in large part, we miss many appointments. Um, you might say, well, they're not divine appointments. If you can miss them. Well, yeah, God gives us an opportunity, but he doesn't need us. One of the things Matthew talked about me being direct in pastor's discipleship class. And clearly Matthew comes to church here. Um, uh, you know, I, I I'm direct wherever I go. There's not a lot of time left, and I believe there's a sense of urgency. So we need to look for those divine appointments. And I think the biggest thing is to make yourself available. Two quick things, and we'll go on to another subject, another question. One is you got to be in the Word. Man, woman, it doesn't matter. But if you're in the Word, God is going to be preparing you for those divine appointments. You've got to be hungry for the Word. It can't be just a casual relationship with the Lord. It's one thing uh, when we have a real word of knowledge that the Lord will give us. It's another thing when we're just throwing out these trite Christian Bible verses. You know, oh, God works all things together for the good of those who love Him. Uh, We we need to be men and women in the Word. David said to hide the Word in your heart and we won't sin against Him. Um, whatever you put in your heart, God will bring out in these divine appointments. So it's not something really that you can prepare for. The second thing, and this is me repeating myself, which I do a lot, um, you just have to be available. Too often we think we need to be able, and I say, no, we just need to be available. And if we set our heart on on uh, talking to people, Lord, use me as you will. He will give you many, many opportunities to do that. Now, that doesn't mean everywhere we go, people get saved. That's not what I'm representing at all. But it means that we get opportunities to plant seed. In the parable of the sower, Jesus said, the seed is the word of God. And so we're able to, to sow, to scatter the seed. And in the parable, we're to scatter it liberally everywhere we go. And the, the the ground or the heart that it lands on, well, that's up to the Lord himself. So very important, Matthew. Look for these divine appointments. Uh, God will give them to you. And it's not going to be anything weird, you know, like a little voicing, oh, turn left here, or turn right there. When I was a brand new Christian, I used to think that, okay, Lord, should I go left or should I go right? It doesn't matter if you're with Jesus. All we have to do is follow him, and because he wants to use you, um, because he loves other people, then you just have to say, okay, Lord, I'm going to do it. And one of the things that we have to really resist is the the enemy saying, oh, you you can't share, you don't know enough, or why would they listen to you, or don't bother them, it's a public place. Um, Believe me, public places are where people's guards are down, and it's really easy to talk to people. And you know what? People enjoy it for the most part. Hope that helps. Thanks, Matthew. Appreciate the call. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from Scott. I knew I was going to get this one. I didn't think it would come in this form, but here it is. Scott says, I am a Republican, and I'm disappointed that Christians would embrace Donald Trump. How is that possible when he is so ungodly? Scott, we have to be realistic. Our political system is a two-party system. What that means is we have a choice from two parties. One of those men is going to become the president. And so here's what we do. We look at the man whose policies are closest to a godly political agenda. For example, we obviously know about abortion, uh, lawlessness that's in our country. You know, uh, God is for law and order. Um, uh, There's just so many different things. We know that if we vote in this election, one candidate is going to continue to embrace uh, perversions of sex, um, homosexuality, transgenderism and others. I don't think sometimes, Scott, that we think about the effects of those things. As a pastor, I'm dealing with an entire generation of people whose brains are being stolen from them. They're being literally brainwashed by social media. Uh, And and a lot of these kids are making horrible decisions about their bodies medically um, and, and physically mutilating their bodies because they've been convinced that they're not in the right body. And we know that one candidate, um well, all we have to do is look in the White House. We we've got cabinet members, men who wear dresses to work. And that will not happen in a Donald Trump White House. Now, is Donald Trump a Christian? The answer is clearly no. And we shouldn't expect him to act like a Christian. And to answer the question that people scream at me, well, doesn't character count? Yeah, character counts. But people that are not born again Christians, let's just say we're all lacking in character. So what we do, Scott, is we choose a candidate whose policies are going to most closely resemble uh, that which would be uh, identifiable as from the Lord. So it's really important. And if you say, well, I just can't possibly vote for Trump, and that's clearly what you say, um, then that really is a vote for the other guy. And the damage that is being done by this unrestrained march to sin, the damage that's being done is infinitely worse, infinitely worse. Now, let me be clear with you, and I'm not going to politically endorse anybody, but let me say this. I wish... There was another Republican candidate uh, who wouldn't be such uh, a lightning rod. Um, I wish there was somebody who would be more thoughtful and considerate and kind. I'll take it one step further. I wish there was a born-again Christian who would really stand for Jesus Christ. But you see, Scott, we don't have that choice. So we have to choose. We either choose Donald Trump or we choose Joe Biden And I think from a Christian perspective, the easiest choice, that does not mean that Donald Trump isn't a jerk at times. It doesn't mean that he is embarrassing at times. But what it means is that he will put at least a halt or slow down this free fall our country's in into the moral abyss. And and that's why others... Are voting and embracing Donald Trump. It's not Christian na- nationalism. Now, while there are people that that really overinflate Donald Trump, and and uh, some would say even worship him, uh, and maybe it's unhealthy, uh, but but you see, that's the anomaly. That's not the general rule. So we vote for somebody who is most closely going to model by policy that which we could expect. Jesus would embrace and for, for I think Christians it ought to be a real easy choice you know Scott I've said a bunch of times how can anybody vote cast a pro-abortion vote, vote I just don't get it so you say well, how can a Christian embrace Donald Trump well it's just the choice that we have to make so I hope that helps Scott thank you very very much let's go to Lucy on line one Lucy thank you for calling you're on the air
2: Hey, Pastor Ron, how are you doing?
3: Doing really well, thank you.
2: Greetings from Calvary Crafters.
3: <laughs> thank you, Lucy.
2: Today we we studied James 1, 19 to 27. And verse 26 speaks exactly of what you were talking about a minute ago. Uh, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive mm-hmm. themselves, and their religion is worthless that's in the n i v
3: yeah
2: so as far as doing what uh doing and and uh speaking what the bible says that's the proof of uh having it. Uh, in, inside your soul and uh, and with the power that comes with it uh, the word of God who is Jesus Christ himself is, uh, is the one that gives us that power to act on what we read in the Bible and uh, that's just a little summary of what we talked about today um, do you have anything to add to uh, enrich our study.
3: <laughs> I don't know if I can enrich your study, Lucy. Your study sounds pretty rich already. But I can say this. I can say that you know, Jesus said, um, if you love me, you will obey me. And that's what acting out on what the Word of God says. It's obedience. It's a question of obedience. and And the people that... Um, are not obedient. They're living willfully in disobedience. I'm not talking about the person that just goofs up or messes up or or is caught and, and gives in to a temptation. But I'm talking about the person who's getting up every day and knowing that they are sinning and they don't care. They're not changing that. Um, that person, according to John, and we're going to go to First John on Sundays when we get done with the book of Acts, Um, uh, John says, look, if you if you say you love God, but you do not do what he tells you to do, you're a liar and the truth isn't in you. And uh, I think as as harsh as that sounds to people, uh, it's something that we've got to remember. And uh, James, I I would like James because he is super direct. Uh, James had a, a reputation in the early church for being so holy, so pious—and I don't mean that in a negative or pejorative sense—but but but people knew that he he was a man of prayer, walking uh, with his brother, and he didn't have any time to goof around. They really believed that Jesus was coming back in their lifetime, so they were serious. Hey, we've got thirty minutes left in this Tuesday show. Three four zero ninety five eighty five, or toll free eight seven seven six three zero K S L R. This is the Word to stand up for life. I'll be back in two minutes.
1: Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh.
3: Welcome back to the second half of our Tuesday show, three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. That's area code 210. Lucy, let me add something. Um, um, one of the things about James, uh, people think James is very legalistic. Uh, James, remember the church in James' time was entirely Jewish. And James would see these Jewish converts... He would see them observing Jewish rituals and observing the Sabbath and all those things, basically holding on to their Jewishness. And, and, and then he would, he would notice contradictions in their life. And um, throughout the Old Testament, the prophets over and over, Isaiah chapter 1, uh, your your festivals, your feasts, your Sabbath observances, my soul hates them, Jesus said. And uh, tomorrow one night's Bible study in, in most uh, chapters 3 and 4, God is simply saying, look, you can bring offerings every day. You can bring a, a tithe every three days instead of the three months um, that, that, uh, uh, that, that was prescribed in Deuteronomy. Um, uh, you can do all of that every day. But if you're not listening for the Lord, if you're not doing what he says, then all of it is useless. And again, God hates those things. And so James would be perplexed by the the, the people that weren't pursuing holiness. You know, James was called old camel knees uh, in the first century church. Um, the story is that he spent so much time in prayer that his knees were grotesquely disfigured. And James, you know, you may think this is legalistic, but James couldn't understand why everybody wasn't doing it. And so that's why he is so very, very direct with all of uh, those directions and and man, I I just um, love the book of James, and I know that I would love James um, to just be able to talk to him. I would love that very very much. Okay, let's go to a question. We've got this one, anonymous. I know you say that we have to repent to be saved, but I think repentance is a work, and we're not saved by works. Um, anonymous, if that represents your point of view. Um, then you know nothing about salvation. <laughs> it's that simple. Repentance isn't a work. Repentance is something that the Holy Spirit draws from us. Uh, we have to realize that we're sinners and we need to be saved. Now, if I'm right and, you know, this this thought process of yours uh, extrapolates out into your life, uh, you, you're, you're very easy on yourself. You know, not got to learn to hate sin. And a uh, Bible study I did just this past Sunday Uh, I said repentance is the first word of the gospel, and there is no salvation without it. We can come to Jesus the way we are, but we can't stay that way. My own experience, biblical experience, is simple. When you meet Jesus, he changes you, and you can't meet Jesus until you're actually sorry for your sin. Now, the very first interaction that any of us have with the Holy Spirit Remember, the Holy Spirit is God, Christ in us, the hope of glory. The very first experience that any of us have with the Holy Spirit is when he comes alongside of us in the book of Acts. There are three relationships that every believer has with the Holy Spirit. The first one, the one I'm talking about now, when he comes alongside you, is described by that Greek word para. He comes alongside you. Jesus said when he comes, he he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment. And it's when the Holy Spirit starts dealing with your heart that you realize, hey, what I did, I shouldn't do. That was wrong, and I feel bad about it. Now, when I got saved, Anonymous, there were a lot of things I didn't understand. Because I didn't grow up in church. I hadn't, I'd never opened a Bible. I really struggled with why my conscience was bothering me. I didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit. But it was the Holy Spirit pointing out that it was wrong. And then he got me to a place where I would find the answer for that, that, that wrong, um, the, the remedy, and that's giving my life to Jesus Christ. But without repentance, I'm sorry, that's all repentance is. It's a U-turn in life. I was going this way. Now I'm going that way. I'm uh, Following Jesus. I was opposing Jesus. Uh, Saul of Tarsus uh, was chasing Christians to persecute him. Jesus picked him up, and he started chasing Jesus to serve him. That's what repentance is. And that's what I talked about last Sunday. If you are interested in Anonymous, you can go to calvarysa.com, and you can listen to last Sunday's message. Um, I said to the church, figuratively speaking, now obviously this isn't real, but figuratively speaking, there is a sign on the gate of heaven that says repentance required. If you don't think you have to repent... You don't think you need to be saved. It's not a work. It's a work of the Holy Spirit that brings us to the person of Jesus Christ. Here is a question called into our studio from Mark in Austin. Um, What are your beliefs on cursed objects? Um, If I'm understanding you right, Mark, um, I'm not superstitious at all. Uh, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. So there's really nothing cursed. There's no object that can separate us from the love of God. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. If God is for us, who can be against us? And if we understand that, then there's nothing cursed. I get asked a lot by people to go bless their house or to cleanse it from demon spirits. And I tell them, look, and, and, and I'll do it if somebody wants me to do it. But the the point is, there's no need. When we walk in in the presence of Jesus Christ, the demons flee. So if there's an object, an inanimate object that somebody says, well, that's cursed, uh, it, it has no effect whatsoever on the Christian. I know we like the sense of being superstitious or we like the sense of, of uh, being mystical in our faith. But the reality is, when walking with Jesus, believe me, the demons flee. And nothing, nothing can keep you away from his protection. So, Mark, I hope that helps. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question. This one is from Ben. Um, 2 Peter 3 says, Jesus will destroy the world with fire. Why would he do that? Well, Ben, he's going to do that because what God wants to do uh, is make things the way they used to be. Now, in the millennial reign, we're going to have a reversal of the curse. Romans chapter 1 says even the ground is groaning. Uh, creation is groaning uh, because they know that it knows it's been subjected to a curse. This isn't the way things are supposed to be. Um, In the millennial reign, as he restores the earth, he he can't make it perfect again. Sin has already tainted the world that we live in. So when it's burned by fire and a new heaven and a new earth is created, it will be perfect. And we're going to know then what it was like for Adam and Eve at the beginning. Before sin entered the world, we're going to know what it was like. So this is just a cleansing process. Fire, of course, is a purifier. And uh, when the world is going to, to, to melt away, um, you talk about global warming, that'll be it. But God is going to replace this earth uh, with uh, perfection. And, you know, Ben, in, for, for my dollar, I, I just believe with all of my heart that when we see what it is that God created for us, people will say, why did God, does God allow bad things to happen? this isn't the way God made it when Jesus was outside the tomb of Lazarus and he saw the people crying. The Bible says he wept and certainly didn't weep because of Lazarus he knew exactly what he was going to do. But he wept because he would think back to that moment when he created everything and it was very good. And he was crying because he was thinking this isn't the way things were supposed to turn out. He cried because he saw the effect the horrible impact of sin, well, by burning things and making things new, we're going to see the beauty that God had in store for all of us. So, Ben, thank you very, very much. Here's a question from Lee. He says, how could Mary, along with the other children, think that Jesus was out of his mind because she knew who he was. Well, this is from Mark chapter 3, uh, verse 21. Let me read it. It says, when his family heard about this, and this was the attention Jesus was getting, and by the way, it would have been the unwanted attention that the family was getting as well. Um, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he is out of his mind. And literally, that's not an exaggeration or hyperbole at all, They. They really believed he had lost his senses. Imagine that he—they knew that the, the Jewish leaders were plotting his murder. Uh, um, again, they didn't like the unwanted attention they were getting. Uh, you live in a home with somebody, um, you know. The last thing you want is is uh, always to be compared to the perfect son. Um, and they were afraid. They didn't believe. And that's what unbelievers do. Now, with Mary, you're right, it's a little more difficult because she knew who Jesus was, the wedding in Cana. She said, you do whatever he tells you to do. So she knew. But Mary was a person, a human, just like you and me. And when things aren't working out the way we expect them to, we have doubt. And no doubt the enemy was pounding on Mary and the family, um, trying to cause difficulty. And so she would be just like you would or I would, Lee. There were moments when she had doubts. John the Baptist was the same way. He knew who Jesus was. But as he's in prison getting ready to lose his head, he would have thought, well, well, you know, if Jesus is really who I thought he was, then he ought to deliver me from this. And it's about time for him to reestablish his kingdom or to establish his kingdom, not reestablish. Uh, And so doubts, doubts are human, doubts are natural, and we all had them, and Mary did as well. Thank you for the question. 340-9585, or toll-free, 877-630-KSLR, Teresa said, uh, how can you be so sure that people will be saved after the rapture? Well, Teresa, in in the the book of Revelation, we've got uh, the story of the ministry of the 144,000 uh, Jewish evangelists uh, endowed with supernatural power. Um, they go out into the world and tell everybody about Jesus. There's even an angel, or one translation says an eagle, but but angel is the correct translation, who goes across sky proclaiming the glorious gospel. Um, the, people are saved. Uh, there's a choice to make. You can take the mark of the beast, which seals your fate. Or are you going to believe in Jesus Christ knowing that that decision is probably going to cost you your life, um, and uh, I think it's pretty clear if you read the book of Revelation. Uh, under the altar, in John chapters four and five, we've got the, the 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 martyrs of the of the great tribulation, are crying out, "How long, O Lord, until you avenge our death?" So, um, Teresa, it's just what the Bible teaches. Uh, it will be. Um, beyond anything that we can possibly imagine, it will be the greatest revival in the history of the world. I always tell people, you know, it's going to be so exciting during the Great Tribulation that I almost wish I'd be there. And I say almost with a smile on my face because I know I won't be there. But, oh, wouldn't it be great to be involved in that kind of rapture? we got a, a man in the church, I love him with all my heart, and he's always saying, but but if the rapture comes, there's people that aren't going to get saved and and he you know he's so evangelism oriented he wants everybody to get saved well that's what it's going to be like in the great tribulation in the meantime we'll take Jesus' promise he said pray that you be kind of worthy to escape these things the tribulation that's going to come upon those who live upon the earth and uh, he's going to protect us from that tribulation but it'll be people will be saved multiplied billions of people will be saved. It will cost them everything. And life will be unbelievably dark, unbelievably bleak, death everywhere around. You're going to see the evil when the Holy Spirit, the restrainer, is taken out of the way. You're going to see an evil that we can't even imagine now. I mean, we look around and see how evil the world is now. Well, imagine when the Holy Spirit in the presence of the church... Is removed, and there's no restraining power. Well, that's how evil it's going to be. So life is going to be impossible, and it's going to cost them their lives. But, yeah, people are going to be saved. Um, that's why we tell people about the rapture of the church, so that when it happens, they can say, oh, wow, he was right. I thought he was crazy, but he was right. So that's how I'm sure, Teresa, that's what the Bible teaches Here's a question from Steve. Is there a difference? No, I'm sorry. What is the difference between an elder and a pastor? Um, biblically, Stephen, there wasn't any difference. When, when you see appoint elders in the churches, um, what Paul is talking about specifically is the office we call the pastor. That's what it was, the overseer, um, the, the the man that God has called to be his messenger to the church. So when you see appoint elders in the churches, um, that, that would be appointing pastors. Now, um, when I get questions like this, Stephen, I pretty much answer the same way. In our culture, especially here in the West, in the United States, uh, we've sort of convoluted the, the idea of an elder. Um, we have... Uh, laws to incorporate uh, as a nonprofit business, uh, we have to have a board of directors or a board of of, of elders, is what we call it, um, and that satisfies uh, the legal requirements. We can um, have motions and take votes on things, and we can have approval on things before we can get involved in in contracts. Uh, the, the board of directors has to approve it. Um, so, so that's what we call elders. But biblically, in the first century, it was uh, the pastor that he was talking about. So I have a staff of pastors, but I also have a board of elders. And they're the ones who function um, alongside me. Um, they function as as um, those who give approval to the things that we're going to do in the church. So that's the difference. Um Steve, the real difference, and I'll just talk about our church. Um, I keep the same requirements for elders and pastors. Uh, all of my elders uh, have have to have the the the, the gift to teach, uh, and they they all do. Um, some are not as comfortable doing it as others, but um, the the same requirements, the same character requirements, and the same set of gifting. Um, not all teachers are pastors or gifted to be pastors. And uh, that's probably the way uh, we would look at them, the primary difference. We have those pastors, those elders, rather, who can teach, um, but, but they're not required to be pastors. So I hope that makes sense to you, Stephen. Thank you very, very much. Bruce wants to know Did God make Satan fall or did he choose to fall? Um, he chose, he had a choice, just like you have a choice, Bruce, and I have a choice. Um, Satan made a choice. God gave them free will. They had to, God never compels anybody to love him or to serve him. God wants us to choose to love him or choose to serve him. And when Satan's opportunity came up, he was Lucifer. When Lucifer's opportunity came up, and it's, I think, significant that he was, um, according to Ezekiel chapter 28, he was God's most beautiful creation. Says that when he lifted his wings, music emanated from it. That's Ezekiel twenty-eight. When uh, in in the King James version. That's why some people say, well, he was the worship leader in heaven. Um, but at some point, given the opportunity, um, he made a decision to rebel against God because he wanted to be worshipped himself. The five I wills of Satan. I will cast my throne above the Most High. He he simply wanted the the the, the worship that only God is worthy of receiving. Now, the question, Bruce, is when did this happen? And I'm just giving my opinion. I feel I, 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 I'm very strong in this opinion, but I believe this happened on the sixth day of creation when God made Adam and made man, and he said, this is very good. Now, the basis for me saying that is Ephesians 2.10. It says, we are his workmanship. That Greek word is uh, poema. Uh, we get our English word, obviously, poem from it. And the idea is we are the creative expression of God's beauty. We're the best thing God ever did. And before that, Lucifer was the best thing. And now the most beautiful thing. And now God made this mar- marvelous man, this, this human, and said, now, now things are very good. And I think that was the opportunity that God gave the angels to make their own choice we know that Lucifer um, convinced a third of the angels in heaven, that that means they became demons they fell with him it was a one time only irreversible choice and what that means is that uh, their fate was sealed, unlike humans uh, we live in a time of grace and God's grace is available every day, we can mess up and we can rebel against God um, but, but at any given time we can say, God, I'm so sorry. We do that with repentance, and then we ask Jesus to save us, and, uh, and we can become a child of God. The angels who kept their first estate and the angels who fell, it was a one-time-only choice. So there's no more temptation for the good angels. There's no more temptation for them to rebel against God at all. Good question. Thank you very, very much, Bruce we've had a little bit of time. We could get a phone call in if you want to, three four zero ninety five eighty five. 9585 Denver says, what does it mean when people say let go and let God? Um, Denver, I hate cliches. I hate those little trite cliches, and that's one of the most famous or, from my perspective, infamous ones. Uh, all it means is that I'm going to let God um, call the shots in my life. I'm going to stop trying to make things happen my way. I'm going to stop trying to do things um, that um, that please me. And I'm simply going to surrender to the will of God for my life. So that's what they mean. But there's a much better way of saying it than just throw out those cliché sayings. And we Christians, we have to avoid those kind of clichés um, with with all of our strength and resolve. So it just means that I'm going to stop calling the shots in my life. I'm going to let God do it, and then what we learn Denver is that we have the opportunity to see the power of God in and through our own lives. Very important. Good question. Here's another question. I think I do. I got three minutes left. I was a pastor who lost my ministry because of sin. Can God ever use me again? Anonymous i don't you don't tell me what your sin is, um but it doesn't matter the answer obviously is of course he can and wants to use you again. now. the enemy is going to pour out all kinds of condemnation upon you. Romans chapter eight verse one says there's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and yet so many of us feel condemned because the devil's pounding us and accusing us. Oh, you blew it, you'll never get a chance again when we fall like this, it's because of of uh sin and embarrassment um you know we just feel like everybody's pointing fingers at us And god says look just come to me now i'll be honest with you i'm not not knowing what your sin is there are sins that a pastor can commit that will irrevocably disqualify him from being a pastor again bible says too much is given much is required i said earlier i was in a pastor's luncheon today with the greater San Antonio area Calvary Chapel pastor. We were talking about this. Uh, We need to guard our walk very closely, very carefully, because we can forfeit the right to do what we do. I can't imagine what I would do. Every Sunday, the condemnation for me would be overwhelming, because instead of being at church and teaching the Word, I'd be in a place where I know the enemy would say, See, you blew it. God can never use you again. Um, so, so yeah, God wants to use you again, but I would say, let's take baby steps and find out what God will do. Now your gift to teach the word is irrevocable. So maybe there's a place that you can be used in the church. But I personally believe if, for instance, your sin was adultery, if you cheated on your wife, especially, uh, in light of the fact that so many pastors fall with people in their church, women in their church, um, I think that would be a sin that would disqualify you from ever being a pastor again but it in no way means that your ministry uh, value to the church your, your value to God would be diminished at all it just means um, we start over we start over and say okay Lord what about me and what about today and if we'll do that then um, God will lead us back to a place of fruitful ministry again it won't be the same but it will be fruitful. And that's, of course, what we want to do. Hey, thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to the Wednesday edition. I'm sorry, the Tuesday edition of the Word to Stand On for Life. Uh, I'll be back tomorrow, Lord willing, on AM 630, The Word. We'll see you at 4 o'clock. God bless.
1: Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh.